The sender's name in your inbox is familiar, but as you read the email, something seems just a little bit fishy. You know the person well enough, but the email itself sounds off. As you look at the attachments they ask you to open up, you realize it's got kind of a goofy file name and wonder if you should click on it. Or maybe it has a a link in the body of the email that's asking you if, if this picture, if you click the link, is actually you. Can you confirm that? Or it's a message that your friend seems to communicating they're traveling or on vacation and they're stranded and they need some money. Can you help them out? None of this sounds like the individual whose name you know in the sender. And then you look at the actual email address that this message was sent from and you recognize it's gibberish. It's not your friend at all. This is somebody spamming you, a fraud, a fake. We're accustomed to this more and more, not just in email, it can be text messages, it can be phone calls and voicemails once somebody gets your number and some random number reaches out and starts texting you and it sounds like a legitimate conversation and then they just have the wrong number but want to maintain and continue the conversation. Something seems off. There are, of course, signs to be able to tell when something is likely a fake or a fraud, but it's not always so easy Uh, The fakes, the frauds, get better and better at passing themselves off as somebody who is real or somebody that you actually know. And one can imagine it's only going to get more difficult with artificial intelligence becoming more prominent. Those concerns that we have of fakes and frauds also apply to the church. Most of us would agree, and I think most churches would at least claim to agree with the message from last Sunday that church is for everyone. And that part is is well and good. We certainly want to be welcoming of everyone. However, what we're not so sure about is those churches that are welcoming of everyone, do they serve the God who is for everyone? Or do they serve a fake, a fraud? an imposter, somebody that sounds, that that maybe looks a lot like God and and is passed off as such, but, but isn't. So as we continue this series, we want to ask, what does God want in his church? And and obviously it it stands to reason that he wants his church to to claim to cling cling to and to claim to believe in the, the true God. Well, how do we know who that is? Just as we might have trouble deciphering or determining who a fake or fraud email or text message is, how do we decide or decipher if it's the true God that a church worships? Well, I hope we don't ever get tired of hearing this because I don't plan on ever getting tired of saying it, but we always have to go back to the source, don't we? To the Word of God. That is the only place where God is going to reveal to us who he actually is and what he has done for his people. And listen to how that God reveals himself. Again, as you heard from our reading in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord came down and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. 
It's often said that the God of the Old Testament is the God of, of the law. He's all about wrath and punishment and fury. In the New Testament, God is the loving Jesus, the gospel God. But I don't know that you'll find clearer gospel in, in Scripture than this portrayal, this description of who God is that he gives to, himself, to, to Moses of himself in the Old Testament. Absolutely stands apart from any other religion whatsoever. No God wants to be known outside of the God of Christianity as the God filled with grace and compassion toward his people. And it's not as if just this description alone is remarkable, and it is, but when we consider the context, the, the timing of when God chose to reveal himself in this way, it's even more remarkable because of what was about to happen and also what had already happened. What was about to happen was God was going to give once again his Ten Commandments to Moses. Now think about that for a moment. When, when in our world somebody is going to lay down the law, somebody is going to give us the rules or, or something that needs to be followed, how is that customarily done? Well, somebody, a, an individual giving those rules or the organization makes absolutely sure that one thing is clear, these are going to be the consequences if you don't follow these rules. This is going to be the punishment if these rules are not obeyed. And that makes sense because the only teeth the law has is fear. And if there's no fear, why is anybody going to be obligated to, to follow those rules or those laws? Because of the fear of the consequences. But you notice that before God gives this law, his Ten Commandments to Moses the second time, he's not flexing his muscles. He's not giving some divine demonstration of his wrath and his power, which he does elsewhere in the Old Testament, but not here right before he gives his law. And it's not just, as I said, what he was about to do, but what had already happened. If you know your history, you know why there was a reason or a need for Moses to receive the Ten Commandments a second time. What happened the first time? Well, after God had given his Ten Commandments to Moses and he was coming down from Mount Sinai, what did Moses see? But God's people, fresh off their delivery out of Egypt from slavery, there they were, bowing down, rallying around, and revering a hunk of metal. Golden calf. Despite the fact that the true God had just delivered them from the fanatical Pharaoh and his army, there they were, shortly after, bowing down and worshiping a golden calf. And when Moses saw that, he understandably, he smashed down the Ten Commandments in his anger. God at that time would have had every right to wipe out, to eliminate his people. This is not what I rescued you for. I didn't deliver you so that you could turn away from me and, and worship hunks of metal. So as remarkable as this description that the Lord gives of himself is just standing alone, even more so sandwiched in between what he was about to, to give and what had just happened. Instead of revealing himself as a God who is to be feared, a God that, that you better behave or obey or else, we hear again this description. The Lord, the Lord, 
the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Compassion, grace, slowness to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion. This is the calling card. This is how the true God wants to be known to the world. You've seen enough detective or or police shows to know that when they're trying to solve a crime, sometimes they need to enlist the assistance or the help of a sketch artist. And that sketch artist is going to go around and and talk to any potential witnesses, anybody that may have seen the suspect in the the crime that was committed, and he's going to get a a description, some details of what the individual looked like. And as as he gathers some of that information, he does his best to put together a sketching, a drawing of what that suspect looked like for officers trying to find the suspect or for anybody else that that may have some more information. The Lord gives a very clear sketch of who he is. And it's more than that. It's not just some best guess of what he might look like. It's a very clear representation of who God is described in these verses. And wow, do these characteristics stand out. A God of compassion and grace in a world in which those characteristics seem to be missing in action. Even in the the face of the disaster and whatever ails other people, when others are suffering and hurting, instead of compassion and grace, so often the world finds itself saying, well, you should have been more careful. You should have thought more about the decisions that you made and you wouldn't have found yourself in this position. And while all of that may be true, since when did that ever relieve other people of care and compassion for those who are in need? Not just compassion and grace that stand out, but, but a slowness to anger Anger does not appear, at least in my perspective, to be getting slower and slower in the world. Rather, the fuse is getting shorter and shorter in our world. The Lord continues describing himself abounding in love and faithfulness. Sounds like that should be something that is is flooding the world instead of the drought of love and faithfulness. And, And maintaining love to thousands... Think of how many marriages fall apart regularly simply because that love, the commitments that spouses have toward each other are not maintained. And a God who is forgiving rebellion and sin in a world that wants to see rebellion and sin punished and justice carried out, not forgiveness, not mercy. This is how God reveals himself to the world and how desperately a world that is lacking all of these things needs this kind of God. And not just a world, but how desperately those whose hearts are lacking these things also need this kind of God. We who lack the same compassion and grace, the the same patience that God has for us. It isn't just the world who needs this God. It isn't even just the church who needs this God. 
We, each of us, need this God. Moses knew that. You listen to his response and it becomes clear what he recognized about the Lord as he revealed himself to him. We're told in verse 8 and following, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Do you see the, the key word there, the pronoun that, that he used? Yes, he acknowledged the stiff-necked people, but he asked the Lord to forgive our wickedness and our sin. This wasn't Moses saying, Lord, forgive these nasty, awful, wretched people, but forgive us, including himself among them. Recognizing that he, just as much as every last Israelite, was in desperate need of God's faithfulness and forgiveness. And only when he was confident that that's who the Lord was and that's what he had from the Lord, did he then have hope to move on in the future. This is the same God that we need. The church needs this compassion and grace to stand on. We need this compassion and grace to stand on. We need a God who is slow to anger and isn't just going to turn his face from us each and every time we sin, but will go back to the cross and remind us and himself that he has chosen already in his grace to forgive and wash away all sin. The church needs this God. Therefore, we need this God to stand on his faithfulness and his forgiveness. And how do we know that we have it? Because we know that we have Jesus. We know that we have his forgiveness and his compassion because we know Jesus. We have experienced the Lord's patience because we know Jesus. We have experienced that abundance of love and faithfulness because we know Jesus who says, I will never leave you, but am always with you to the very end of the age. We know all of these qualities about the Lord that he reveals himself here in the Old Testament because we know Jesus. And that is the kind of church that God wants, the one that holds to Jesus, the church that clings to Christ. Do you know what that looks like, dear friends? That means all Jesus, all the time. And I don't mean go out and, and make it weird in the world, but rather make sure that it's not weird because it's so regular, because it's so consistent that it's all Jesus, all the time. It's all Jesus in your marriage. It's all Jesus as you are parenting and raising the children that God has entrusted to your care. It's all Jesus as you interact with your neighbor. It's all Jesus that allows you to look at your enemy and love your enemy. It's all Jesus that allows you to filter all of your friendships. It's all Jesus that gives you care and compassion for the downtrodden, for the abused, for the neglected, for those who are discarded by society. It's all Jesus all the time. That's what it means to cling to him. Not just when we're gathered here. Not just when we're having religious conversations. Not just when we're surrounded by other Christians talking about our faith. But all Jesus, all the time. 
That's what it looks like. That's what it means to cling to Christ. As we kind of bring things to a close this morning, I think the characteristics, the descriptions that the Lord reveals about Himself, most of them are quite familiar because they are sprinkled quite regularly throughout Scripture. Compassion and forgiving and slow to anger. But one that I want to just key in on as we as we wrap up, and it's that, that phrase of maintaining love to thousands. How often aren't we enamored with something, infatuated with something, we're fixated on it, we have to have this thing or do that thing or, or spend time with this person, and, and we're so caught up, we're enamored, and we love it for a while, but it isn't maintained. So quickly it, it fades it fizzles away. But God's love is not like that. God's love will never be like that. God maintains His love for His people. And while there are a good number of ways in which the Lord does this daily in the lives of of His children, His sons and daughters, is there a, a better way a more clear manifestation of God's love than this time each and every week when we gather in God's house to be reminded of and assured of that love and compassion that he has for us. To think from the outset of our time together, from the the invocation to the blessing at the end and everywhere in between, what is the focal point of our time here today? It is the Word of God in which he reveals to us how deeply he treasures us and loves us each and every week for this time that we have together. And then we have the blessed privileges like we do today on occasion to rejoice as God brings little Sean and and others into his family through baptism, which reminds us of our own baptism, which takes us again to the depth of God's love for us to adopt us into his family. And And the grace doesn't just stop there. He continues, as he will this morning, to give us the very privilege of receiving his body and blood in the sacrament, to remember the sacrifice that he made, but also to point us to the price that he paid to make us his, to be assured that our sins truly are forgiven and our names are written in the book of life. God maintains his love for you and he does it each and every week right here in his house. He wants you to to cling to Christ. And and there's no better starting points than right here where we gather around word and sacraments, where he conveys that love to us. One last real quick point that you, you may wonder, you might say, well, Pastor, what about that one little phrase in these verses? Don't just dismiss those in the second part of verse 7. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. What about that? Should we be afraid of that? Should we be worried if God makes it clear that he punishes the guilty? Simply put, no. You should not be worried because you are not guilty. You are in Christ. And anyone who is in Christ already receives the benefit of a Christ who endured that guilt and its punishment for us. So there is no guilt. There is only grace. 
How do we know the, the church that follows, that worships the true God? There are signs, there are indicators to look out for, but perhaps none clearer than paying attention to listen to and for the name Jesus. And when you hear that name Jesus, listen to what is said about that Jesus. Because if he is merely an example, if he's merely a, a model for you to follow to be a better Christian, that falls short of the true God. When you hear that name Jesus, listen also for the title that he prefers to be known by, Savior. My Jesus is my Savior, and he is yours too. And he belongs to the church that clings to Christ. May we always be numbered among them. Amen.